Kia ora and welcome to the New Zealand Improv Festival Audio Archive. Bringing you live recordings and conversations from New Zealand's annual celebration of spontaneous theatre. In this episode, we bring you truth, authenticity and characterization. A live panel discussion about performative authenticity and how artists can create compelling and honest characters. The following episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Bats Theatre in October 2020. Please note, due to technical difficulties, the audio quality is a bit poor at times, but the conversational content is always sweet as. And now presenting the NZIF 2020 conference series. Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Improv Festival 2020, close to home. Uh, I am your moderator today, Aaron Douglas, and I am joined by a tremendous panel of professionals, creative people, and artists, might I say. Uh, today, we're going to be venturing into truth, authenticity, and characterization. Ooh. <laughs> uh, we are joined today by... Jeans, surgeon, sergeant, sergeant, affirmative. I wasn't sure whether there was because isn't there an A in there somewhere yeah, somehow? That's a French name, Ooh. so if you wanted to say Jean Sergeant, oh, oh. but Jean Sergeant will do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next we have Brendan, Brendan Monty West. How are you, sir? Uh, next we have Liz Butler. Hello there. Hi, Erin. Thank you. Coming. Thank you for having me. Uh, and finally, we have the Chris. Oh, hello there. Thank you for coming, sir. Thank you for having me here. I have a warning for the panel, and a warning for anyone listening or in the audience. We are about to venture into some very potentially nuanced, <laughs> abstract, and conceptual areas of thought. So, just a warning for anyone going, oh, I don't want, to, I don't want any of that. You're going to get it. <laughs> so, um, welcome. Today we're going into the craft of building a character and how it can be challenging, especially if the character is a comedic embodiment of your own identity. In a world that constantly craves authenticity and new content, how can 21st century performers live up to this demand? Welcome to Truth, Authenticity and Characterization. A roundtable of experienced theatre, improvisers, and stand-up comedy performers. <clears throat> Today we'll be breaking down the concept of authenticity and discuss how artists can be authentic while crafting comedic and theatrical personas. Uh, before we launch into the discussion, uh, let's go down the panel and uh, introduce ourselves and a little bit about ourselves and our performance background. Um, Hi, so I'm Jean Sargent. I'm a theatre actor, writer, producer and director. I'm also a um, sociologist. I'm also a journalist. Um, and I most of the writing that I do is around uh, mental health, media, sexuality, and my writing for performance is basically entirely autobiographical or autobiographical adjacent writing. I wrote a show called Change Your Own Life, which is about my experiences with um, grief and trauma, so those classic comedy topics. Uh, and I'm currently working on a queer ballet for Christmas called The Slutcracker, which is about um, queer chosen family at Christmas. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
Uh, I'm Brendan West. Uh, I'm part of the improv troupe here in Wellington, uh, Doom and Bloom, which is a duo that focuses on existential uh, improv, so tackling kind of quite crunchy <laughs> topics that uh, improv sometimes doesn't want to touch. Um, that comes from a background of I got into the theatre through fight choreography and then sort of had to fill in a lot of blanks. I had to become a swordsmith and have swords to do fight choreography with, and then of course fight choreography happens often when you're acting, and so I learned to act and then sort of went through the Shakespeare route and eventually ran um, two companies called uh, MTE and the Potlips Lounge in Waikato, and eventually ended up teaching at Waikato University, um, specialising in adaptation theory, which oddly enough uh, ends up applying to lots of other fields. Hi, um, I am an improviser and a theatre maker and an actor. I, it's in my, I studied theatre and um, classical singing growing up, but whenever I was, you know, training uh, with singing, I was always drawn to do improv, so it was just like, I, I needed to do that so that I just forged my way to make that happen. And now I uh, perform with whatever group I can get my hands on, and with hall monitors and I teach with improv production. Uh, I'm Chris, I am a stand-up comedian currently, so I perform regularly in Wellington um, and MC shows and stuff like that. Um, I used to work in educational theatre in the UK, uh, of which improvisation was a kind of big part of our rehearsal process. And years ago I got a degree in theatre studies, which I can't remember any of <laughs> uh, so I know uh, all the things. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you everyone. It seems like I've got quite a cast of people to engage in this conversation in a really interesting way. So, um, to start us off, I want to establish and uh, define the concept of authenticity. Authenticity implies originality, truthfulness, creativity, and genuineness. It also assumes the development of an attitude towards life that is personally appropriated instead of prescribed by one's social position, tradition, or convention. People can be called authentic when they have not only created and appropriated their own style, but also proudly carry the responsibility for it. In this sense, our truth is not discovered in one place or time, it is created and evolves throughout our lives. First question is this, <laughs> did that make any sense to you and have I lost anyone yet? <laughs> it made sense to me, but it also made me reflect while I was listening to you read that very complex um, and aspirational uh, uh, definition that it is taking, that definition it seems to imply a journey towards authenticity Whereas I think from my own experience that as a performer, authenticity is actually going back to a time before you learnt to be fake, before you learnt pretending. And I think for myself, my show, um, Change Your Own Life, which is a very authentic um, product of me, it is a product of uh, many years of my personal experience. So on the one hand, I think there's a there's a um, peeling back that is required of that definition. But on the other hand, I kind of think, well, yeah, is it actually something that takes many, many years to be able to do performance-wise? Is there a 
distrust of ourselves early in our career or early in our artistic development that means that we hide our authenticity because we don't necessarily feel authentic to ourselves? I've often found with, with both sort of my personal experience and training sort of other actors and improvisers is that these, these windows of opportunity but right at the start um, of their training and discovering themselves, it sort of isn't a knowledge. There isn't, they both haven't built up any fears and insecurities and haven't learned to master themselves. And it's often very easy to work to a certain level with improvisers right off the bat because they're just playing themselves. And then we move into the space where we start to know more about what we don't know and what we do know and start to kind of become insecure and uh, at least calcify bad habits or calcify double thinking. And you constantly have to even, you know, even further on into your uh, practice and career, you have to constantly sort of interrogate yourself and think, have I built up a block or have I built up, you know, are my, are my actions authentic? Uh, or am I now on another pre-programmed uh, trajectory? Does that make sense? 100%. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, have I been reprogrammed into a new type of yeah, yeah, yeah. truth? It makes me think of the you know theories of theories of acting um, that involve kind of taking on characteristics as opposed to theories of acting that kind of encourage you to remove anything that is not the character from yourself, which I think can be a challenging mindset for people early in. Um, a career in acting or early in an experimentation with acting because you're, you know, you're not that person. But there are elements of yourself that just are superfluous to this character, right? And so then when it comes to playing yourself or to embodying yourself or, you know, in terms of a stand-up comedy type of um, realm, bringing your own stories out and shaping them, and learning some, or bringing authenticity to that, yeah, is that is that a skill set of its own, or is it something that we've kind of programmed ourselves away from? I think I sort of looped around there, but that's okay. I'm confident in myself. Of course, looping around yourself is kind of what we're saying. Absolutely, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, does anyone have any other thoughts? I don't know. I don't think stand-up comedians are necessarily. Um, I don't know, feel the pressure to become necessarily authentic, especially when in the early days, because so much of what you're trying to do is just become comfortable because it's such a, you know, you're, you're yourself, it's a very raw form of, of comedy. So the authenticity of it, you kind of forgive people of, of that kind of thing. But I guess, like, yeah, I think it, it's a journey to, like, try and be comfortable with who you are and what you project. Um, I don't know. It's, I mean, you know, we don't have many conversations in the stand-up world of, "Hey, Jeff, I love your authenticity today." <laughs> we're we're kind of we're sort of preoccupied, um, and I think as well because it's such a responsive art form, you are reacting to what's what's happening. You've got to be sort of flexible with what's happening to you up on stage. You kind of your authenticity, I think, is a little bit. It has to be quite flexible. I've definitely gone on stage and been way too much of my persona or way too energetic on a crowd that didn't want it and then conversely I've been, you know, a crowd that might need my energy or need me to be a bit, I don't know, a little bit less authentic, a bit more contrived or something. So it's very hard to kind of, to, to, to find that and then use it because you need to be very flexible. 
and just for the nature of the, the art form, I guess. There's a there's a demand also being made of the performer where you know we were saying uh, comfort finding a sense of being comfortable on stage, but discomfort is in itself authentic, and so you are trying to um, manufacture states of being that elevate the room or that make you feel that you are in control or you are a part of it because you there is fear that if authenticity is expressed in um, something like discomfort or nervousness that everything's going to be lost. So it's almost like authenticity is a superpower in those situations, in a, in a way. I think I'm just kind of, it, it's interesting to see the different ways that authenticity can kind of be approached and I think with discomfort, you, it, it's, there's your persona of being dis, in discomfort yeah. or, or being uncomfortable on stage and there's, and there's being genuine. Genuine discomfort, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some people sort of, I don't know, I think some comics kind of like um, draw on that, you know, draw on their nervousness to help performance kind of thing. Or they've predetermined their act to be very uncomfortable and therefore they kind of present that. And I guess it's about finding what works for you. It's, it's interesting because from what I'm hearing from all of you is that there's this type of balancing act when it comes to authenticity. It's not just this one avenue that you're pursuing, there's a multiple factors that you're trying to accommodate for, and that comes in whether it's stand-up, whether it's sketch, or whatever kind of formative form it is, there's, there are so many implications of being your thinking self on stage. Um, so it's this idea that you're balancing authenticity with yourself, um, and also, especially for stand-up, you're trying to, you know, fake this type of spontaneity, of like, oh, uh, I've never said this joke before, but I'm going to make you think I have. Uh, this is off the top of my head. So it's like you're, you're faking that authenticity while remaining authentic to who you are as a person. Mm. And uh, it reminds me, I was, I was talking to uh, Neil Thornton, you know, Neil Thornton um, and I asked him uh, a question. And I said to him, if a comedian performs a joke a hundred times before it's released for a Netflix special, does it become less or more authentic? So the act of rehearsing the same material over and over and over again, is the authenticity less or is it more? I guess it's the difference between whether the material is authentic and you are authentic mm -hmm. and how you approach it. I think it's about how, um, um, if you're feeling that it's recycled, I mean, I, I imagine, I guess not so much an improv in theatre and stand-up comedy, you are often reciting find yourself saying lines that you've said a lot of times, to feel genuine saying them after 50 times, 60 times. So I, I, I don't, I, 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 for me it has, a, it has a shelf life and then I'm done with it. I can't, unless I can rework it, but often I've moved on. Um, but I guess an improv, I guess you wouldn't have that so much. I also feel like there's a new connection with the audience every time you go. Like, um, the it, it will never be the same because it will never be the same audience. So when you're telling that joke or when you're doing that scene, it, it, there's this relationship that's built between um, the audience and the performer. And that's, and that's new and that's authentic because that's real. And everybody's present for that. And so I think sometimes the joke can evolve based on who's watching you and who's in the room. 
it's it's entirely discovery based, isn't it? And in performing something that you performed before, because you've learnt the lines, there's still so much room for discovery. And if you're willing to be present, or if you have the energy to be present in the newness of something, even if you've done it sort of 10, 20 times, it is in it is in developing that relationship with the audience that you find new things. It, it makes me think of. Um, if you see a, uh, a musician and they're singing a song that they wrote 20 years ago and they've sung so many times before and you might see something in their eyes or in their face or in their body where they realise a new meaning of a lyric that they wrote 20 years ago. A, a friend of mine had that experience watching um, John Daniel of the Mountain Goat singing um, a song and he said to him afterwards, did you just discover that line for the first time? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, so for me, with um, my show, Change Your Own Life, I'm talking about things that have actually happened to me, but there's new opportunities for me to process or realise those things in the moment with the audience. Um, and so, uh, yeah, to, to go back to what you were saying, Liz, like it's the relationship with the audience that kind of, can keep you or make you or or strengthen your authenticity. Because sometimes you might just be having an awful day and an awful performance and you can't bring any truth to yourself. So you just kind of go go on autopilot and that's fine as well because we're human beings. Yeah. I was just going to say, and maybe they bring an energy too that you don't have in yourself, and then, all, but then there's this kind of like energy feedback loop that's happening, and then you go from there. Yeah, I often think in a very layered way, and, um, in a sense, because I mean, authenticity, because we're obviously just created a series of definitions that are all operating at different levels. Uh, and I guess to codify that just now, how I'm thinking about it, listening to other people's views, is yeah, you have this sort of layer of in the moment, of, of reading the moment, reading what the audience needs, what you need. Uh, just what that kind of intuitive energy is between you. You can feel it. You can feel when an audience is hanging on a word or whether they're just not connecting. But then above that, you've sort of got that layer of the material itself, if it's pre-written, or even an improv, even though we are kind of making it up in the moment in the sense of, yes, it is being made up in the moment, but it is built on top of hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of understanding our instrument and how situations play out and whether we're going to play out the way Expect, inverted, you know, whatever. And then, sort of above that, there is uh, the codec of what medium we're working in. Uh, working in stand up comedy, there's, there's an understanding that you've seen something live, and it's different again than if you see a stand up you know, TV, but there, there's a sort of code of conduct, a code of expectation. And then, even above that, there's an ideological authenticity, particularly now that we're living in a sort of time of, of sort of cultural showdown, of we have our own personal ideologies that then relates to a kind of larger group ideology. And even if our ideology is the one that's currently accepted as, you know, what we're operating on, we'll never express all of it anyway, because we're in a time where we're extra careful about what is appropriate to talk about in a genuine way. I'm not talking in a sort of the world is too busy way. I mean, there's just stuff that we're comfortable talking about, stuff that we're not, and in what forum. So, going down through that spectrum of authenticity, 
uh, you can get any number of those things right or wrong in the moment and feel inauthentic. Oh, I connected with the audience, my material was good, and the audience understood what they wanted from me, but in the end I felt like I wasn't talking about anything ideologically important to myself, or existentially important to myself. Well, this is a great segue into another um, kind of uh, topic that I want to touch on, is that there seems to be uh, a real emphasis in the culture that we value authenticity more than anything. You see that in social media, you see that not even you know, just on stage, but you see it everywhere, there's this inner uh, uh, worship that we give to people who are their true selves. Oh, this is how I, this is me working out, but don't worry, here's another picture of me sitting with my flare coming out, because I'm authentic. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're giving this inner value to people who are their true selves. And to relate it back into performance, I find it interesting that um, when we're dealing with improv, or if we're dealing with stand-up, uh, stand up and the quote unquote the bombing or improv when you uh, take advantage of those of those quote unquote mistakes or failure and you turn it into another authentic moment of entertaining the audience. It creates this sort of sense of the audience being like, oh, I had to be here, right here, right now, to experience that because there's nowhere else that that could have happened. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think the audience knows, like, you know, as an audience member, I know when I'm seeing something authentic. Like, there's just a feeling. And I feel like sometimes I'll, I'm watching something or someone, and there's like something I just can't quite put my finger on. I'm like, oh, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but I'm not. That doesn't like I don't feel like I'm. They're fully there, or like I'm not connecting to this. But then, but then when you are, and it is, and everything's just like magically coming together, you can feel that. Like you just know in your bones that that they're present and they're they're doing their craft. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, I, I, that's the beauty of the art. That that is that is is the invisible stuff that you you just can't. There's no there's stuff you can work. You know, you, you can play with your words and you can craft and you can you know and you can perform it and it might not work one day and it might. But it's the stuff that you don't recognise, I think, is what I enjoy the most. The risk, the not knowing what's going to come or how it's going to react or how I can tweak it and change it. I think that's, I love that about stand-up comedies. It's what's invisible and that I can't see and I'll never be able to work it out. There's no mathematical formula <laughs> to, to figure out what's just happened. But it's beautiful that I can ride that kind of wave of not knowing. It's, it's cool. Into the unknown. <laughs> yeah, there's an element of flow state to it, which is taking me back to what you were at to the earlier definition, long and complex definition, where like to achieve a flow state from positive psychology um, theory, it's to be so kind of good at and comfortable with something that you don't really feel the effort that it takes and you don't really feel the time that it takes. So to be in a flow state is to is really when you are doing what you should be doing because it feels effortless. But effortlessness comes from a lot of effort. And so the invisible stuff in improv, in stand-up, in performance comes from a level of experience <laughs> and skill that has to be there. So again, it's like... Yeah, authenticity might be this very like um, basic part of us, but how do we actually reach authentic 
authenticity or truth in performance is it through being incredibly skilled and experienced, <laughs> which seems a little unfair, really. <laughs> that's the thing about like with stand-up is, is that I I haven't noticed myself get I haven't no, often you don't notice yourself acquiring the skills that you acquire, yeah. and um, and then all of a sudden you sort of catch yourself and you go oh you know because like, I've done about like when you when you've been performing quite often I'm quite critical of myself and then I forget to go oh no don't forget that you've already built these layers of skills and attributes that you that you've got and you're just you're just dwelling on the stuff you haven't achieved yet. Um, yeah. It's it's almost like you've proved to yourself that you can do the thing. So then you feel comfortable doing a thing. I find I still have to give myself permission sometimes to to even do it. Um, which which the comfortability I think leads helps get you to that flow state. Like if you're comfortable, if you believe do it because you've done it before and then you can get there e even if you're not the most skilled maybe oh yeah totally i mean i'm not implying that authenticity has to be backed up by tons of skill and experience i think it's just the idea that to to get there sometimes the duty is incredibly long yeah. and i think that that's kind of a, a funny paradox with it yeah i, I, I I'm interested in what you were saying about giving yourself permission because it was making me think about um, my kind of the way that I end up on stage anytime I end up on stage is just through tremendous amounts of guilt and responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've said, I'll do this, and so now I have to do it, and so now I have responsibility to the audience for it to be very, very good. And um, yeah, that you might get into the flow state in the performance, but the before and after is much more. Um, the head in the toilet stage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like the permission comes in with just, you know, the rules I've taught myself, the ways I've learned to pretend along, like, what's allowed? Am, am I allowed to be this big on stage? Am I allowed to take up this much space? Um, can I, also, I know it's not the polite chat, but, like, you know, being a polite performer. Um, but, but when I take away um, those rules, I give myself permission to just like do my thing and see what happens, then that's when I feel holding myself, that's when I feel authentic and the most happy when I leave the stage. And I get that high from the performance. This is really interesting. I think this is actually a, a very good segue for the next kind of path I'm going to take. Um, in relation to, um, you know, talking about uh, pursuing that confidence, uh, that comfortability, and gaining that experience to feel comfortable in that space. I think, uh, from my experience uh, personally, I have found it so uh, compelling to listen to other people's specific experiences and how it relates to my own. So, uh, whether it's sketch, uh, improv, theater, or stand-up comedy, um, there is this sort of like slow construction and identification of your own persona, your own performative persona. Um, so I'm intrigued to um, go down the panel and um, ask you, um, as much as you're comfortable uh, providing, um, if you can give your own personal experience of how you have kind of come to terms with this, this characterization of yourself, and uh, for anyone listening to potentially resonate with that and say, actually, I'm on this path and I, I, I identify um, that kind of journey that you guys are taking. 
anyone can jump in. Uh, mine was a, to start off in my journey in stand-up was about adopting a persona that, that I was comfortable. Um, it was like hiding. It was a way of going, well, if I go on stage to do stand-up and I'm this persona, then I can remove myself from that, and however it goes, I can blame it on the act that I've performed. And then slowly I've let go of that, um, and, I, and there's a lot more of me. I'm still a kind of like a naive version of myself because that's how it works for my, my jokes to work. I often write like that. You know, it's, it's my own, it's Chris Beatty being a douche <laughs> in order to make people laugh. In, throughout that journey, it's been about you know the, the crossover and going sometimes too far one way or too far the other way. Interestingly, I found that it was I had to get out my influences. I had to get out of my system very quickly. So I, when I grew up, my my huge um, when I was like a teenager, my idol was this comedian called The Evans, who was a British stand-up who was just full of nerves and uh, noises and physicality. And I just had I just had him in me, and I needed to get it out just from maybe a year, and I, there were bits that I had that I didn't rip anything off, but I just, I was him a little bit from time to time, and it just helped me to like ease myself into that, and then ultimately to kind of find my own persona and where I kind of settled. But it was kind of weird, like I sort of felt a bit guilty sometimes, like, oh, am I, I'm just ripping someone else's, off, <laughs> else's act off. Thankfully, he's, you know, not a thing anymore. But I like, uh, <laughs> So yeah, so that was a way that I kind of cheated my way into stand I would have spotted it across a lot of people. Yeah. He would have been rumbled by me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very <laughs> So yeah, that, that's kind of my journey. But I think but my most recent performance, which was last night, it was a lot of me. It was just, I was just so much more comfortable kind of being me. And now I'm at a crossroads where I'm like, well, what do I do? Do I, do I continue down this path of creating a persona that's lots of fun to perform? Or do I just have a go at settling and just being myself? And I don't quite know what that's going to look like yet. So, yeah, I'm sort of in a in between. It's a journey. It's a journey, right? <laughs> uh, I actually had sort of two, two formative moments that I can sort of pluck out and say they were meaningful. And I remember the first one, which is very developmental, was uh, back at high school. Started doing. I knew I wanted to do that sort of fighting on stage, and the only way to achieve that was to do Shakespeare. And I got recruited by um, the drama teacher at the time, and he was actually sort of well known around New Zealand to be um, an excellent Shakespeare teacher. And got given the role of Touchstone, and as you like it, and it just happened to be how she was running it and um, what the role was itself just happened to suit me. I didn't feel like I was playing another character, it was just a version of me uh, spoken in, in verse and prose. And it was successful enough that, of course in New Zealand we have the Shakespeare and Schools competitions and there's sort of layers you go through, and got selected for NSSP, which is a sort of training thing to choose who the young Shakespeare company's going to be that year. And I was completely unprepared, because even though I've been incredibly authentic and effective because of that, I had no craft at all, I hadn't learned it. And uh, so I actually went to NSSP and when was asked to play other characters that, that were, were very far from me, or even just slightly further from me, I uh, had this immense feeling of being overwhelmed and, and unable to do it, and that, that sort of yeah, driven, by, driven by sort of shame. And, and luckily I had a shot later, which was different, but um, wasn't that formative. But years and years later, after sort of just 
journeying through theater and doing different types of writing and directing and being in shows and you know all that kind of thing. Uh, moved to Wellington and met um, the Avro partner that I do film and live with, and we both just happened to be in, in a part of our lives where we were disconnected. We weren't particularly operating with any local troupe, so we didn't have that community feel. We'd both sort of come out of our natural environments with about 15 years each of, of forming, and just happened to meet. And, and it wasn't it wasn't like we were kindred spirits, which are quite very different people, but we met and both expressed the desire of, what do we want to do now? That's purely what we want to do now. And we both just happened to be in a point where we were thinking very existentially about the world, and started to play together, just getting a space and playing together. And, realized that there was this form based around exploring ourselves and our feelings. And so often we go on stage, and even though there's a lot of craft involved, often we're just looking for a moment of, of real truth about topics that, you know, really mean something to you. And it wasn't until I then went and, just as I was asked to do it, went back to doing a bit of short form that I'd done for most of my life. And that element was missing. All of a sudden, I realised with no with no criticism, short form, that was no longer authentic to me. It was just an activity, um, and it was really interesting because you know that first instance with touchstone was was finding authentic uh, authenticity in a really really um, constructed way in Shakespeare, and then discovering that going back into a constructed state was really unnatural later. So now, uh, what I look for performances is can you walk out on stage with a kind of agile nonchalance you know you walk out thinking I'm not scared but I'm not cavalier I'm not cocky but I'm not you know full of, full of uh, anxiety let's see what happens and sometimes it doesn't work but when it does you you generally walk off stage thinking you've given yourself a therapy session and the audience came on the ride there's nothing more uh, gratifying than finding a topic, especially a topic that people are uncomfortable talking about, and not only having it work, but the audience sort of, you feel them connect and go, oh, you know, there was something really nutritious there, and we've all kind of crossed the line safely, and we've gone back. <laughs> Yeah, I tend to deal with um, radical honesty as a as a um, starting point for a lot of autobiographical writing and, and storytelling and stuff. Uh, I used to be a stand-up, and when I was doing stand-up comedy, I would basically just look at um, look for either strange stories from my life. And fortunately for for me, I've experienced a series of strange and bizarre and traumatic and hilarious things in my life and so you know I can go oh well, maybe I'll talk about when I was in a cult or you know I mean stuff that, that kind of starts off as being sort of funny and, and out there anyway it just happens to have been my uh, at times very difficult life um, so starting at a place of radical honesty works for me because the more you sort of tell people the things about mental illness or body stuff or relationship stuff um, the, and really get into the kind of the grit and the muck of, hu of being human and um, the more disarmed people become but in a really good and comfortable way for me, that has been my experience. I think that there are definitely limits and um, areas that I would not cross into, and I think that that 
comes from a respect for my audience. Like I've seen performers do things to their bodies or with their bodies on stage that I felt like I didn't actually give consent to experience that. Or I didn't give consent for that topic to to come up. And it's not even in a, you know, trigger warning this contains reference to blah blah blah. Sometimes people will do things physically that you're like, mm, no, you're really actually taking the piss out of the fact that we are captive to you. Um, and I think that there are ways of telling strange, tragic or explicit stories without, um, without uh, what's the word that I'm looking for, violating the audience. Um, but for me, nothing comes more naturally than just talking about my own experiences. I am not a good writer of fiction. Um, so writing fiction would be incredibly inauthentic for me because it would just be really bad fiction. Um, so, yeah, finding a persona, it really just comes from, like, who am I when I'm being my most honest while also trying to make another person, the audience, happy, I guess. Mm. But just thinking about Shakespeare as well, um, the... Deeply, the highly constructed nature of Shakespeare is actually only as constructed as beats on a page. And people, when they are approaching Shakespeare at a young age, are so afraid of the language that they are not let in to the ease with which you can conduct yourself in Shakespeare. And you had that experience, right, of playing a character that was so much like you that it felt yeah, natural yeah. and normal to you. That was probably a portal into Shakespeare because yeah. that first experience then meant that Shakespeare that I played since with, with kind of the graph. Yeah. You never yeah. bothered trying to grapple with the language as a constructive form, which is like, oh, look at what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. And, but then you get 16-year-olds who are trying to play King Lear with absolutely no experience of being an old king with three daughters, right? Like, and you don't have to be an old man with three daughters to play King Lear, but you have to have some kind of a feeling for that sort of an area. And because Shakespeare gets held up as this you know, at this height of the theatrical arts, people are afraid of it and think that there's a way to do it right and a way to do it wrong. But audiences only understand words that they can understand. And an audience can understand you if you are trying to communicate with them and you're making an effort to make sure that they can understand you. Um, I've worked a lot in Shakespeare and when we, uh, a company I used to be a part of called Bacchanals, um, two of us went to uh, the Globe as part of the um, International Actors uh, Fellowship. And so we began to work in direct address, which is really familiar to anybody who's done stand-up or done storytelling or done um, improv, is actually connecting with the audience in front of you. But it's incredibly uncommon to work with direct address in conventional kitchen sink storytelling in, in theatre. So once I stopped being afraid of making eye contact with the audience, everything in terms of authenticity and truthfulness and performance opened up for me. And I really actually find it very difficult now to do fourth wall theatre. 
I am constantly that performer on stage who wants to like wink at the audience and be like, yeah, you're a dumb joke, aren't you? I'm a performer who I was at a show at Circa last year and this one joke in the show that I delivered got the got the biggest laugh every single night. And I had to stop myself from like wiggling my body in satisfaction. <laughs> it would have been a very authentic moment, but not so much for for the show. Um, yeah, so um, blah blah. I make sense. No, I know I do. You, you have, uh, <laughs> it's like you know what I'm about to talk about next because that seamlessly connects into my next question. Uh, before we go into an audience Q and A, um, I want to bring up Hannah Gatsby. Uh, are we familiar with Hannah Gatsby? Yes. 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 Okay. So Hannah Gatsby, uh, she did a comedy special called The Net, and in uh, the aftermath of that comedy special, she talked about how she broke uh, the contract between her and the audience by diving into trauma mm. and self-deprecation. Uh, the contract that she refers to is that the audience did not pay to come there to receive uh, a performer's trauma and to persist that. They come to a comedy show to laugh, right? So that's how she calls it, I broke the contract. So my question is this, is the relationship more important with the audience than the authenticity relationship with yourself and how so? And do we need to balance this? Uh, there, I, I get what Hannah is saying about her own work. And I think that in her talking about it in those terms, she's exploring a criticism that can be and has been leveled at her. But I would problematize the thesis statement immediately and say, well, stand-up is an art form. And she is one of many stand-up comedians who has made stand-up specials or you know hour or longer shows that are high art that then have to be defended or argued about or reasoned about i mean you know stand-up comedian like stuart lee who plays a persona of himself his work is art his work is incredibly uh deftly constructed art and as a part of that persona he argues for his artistry inside of the show. Um, Hannah Gatsby then with Douglas responded to Nanette by then problematizing her own questions and problematizing the criticism and deconstructing um, stand-up comedy in response to that. I would say that a 70 to $150 ticket selling audience has entered into a contract with an artist that the art that they will be receiving the art that that artist has decided to create um and i think that possibly audiences on netflix who are paying uh 13 a month for a, a ton of art they they can turn it off yeah. if they want yeah i i think that performers have a responsibility to the audience but the responsibility to the audience is to keep the audience safe and um, entertained. And I think that Nanette did both of those things. Um, and she did, and Hannah Gatsby did both of those things while also changing a part of the world and through her um, art form, the part of the world of her art form through what she did. I haven't seen it. 
So I feel <laughs> I never watched, I just never got round to watching Nenets, but am I assuming that at some point the show became very was there still craft and there was still God yeah, one hundred percent. So what yeah. what what was the contract that, that it became done? What did she break? If she was still entertaining and still being received criticism from a lot of uh, straight white men. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, it was not stand up comedy, quote unquote. Not my kind of comedy, no. I like jokes, not getting into grief. No, what's that? No, oh, emotions? No, get out of here. That's, that's the kind of criticism. Right. And, you know, it's it's completely invalid criticism. There's nothing valid about that criticism whatsoever because it's not coming from a place of looking at the artistry. It's actually just saying my feelings were hurt that I wasn't the topic of this conversation. But she has used that criticism to advance her art by critiquing and deconstructing what she did and the world that she is a part of. Um, she's brilliant. She's brilliantly minded and she's using those things really, really well. It, but it doesn't stop the um, pain that is caused by uh, cissier white dudes saying, this wasn't for me, so rah, rah, rah. It's almost like they felt something. They, they were affected by her art. So they felt so compelled to say it, which is actually just a more testament to um, how amazing her work was. Mm. Absolutely. The irony is, is that uh, I've, I've had like a straight white guy tell me a straight white guy that I wasn't doing my art for correctly. And this is actually something that I feel strongly about, not because of that incident. Yeah, so, but man, they will just go on and on. Eh? Yeah, yeah I, I must have associated it. It's probably because I'm part of the demographic. I don't really care. <laughs> Is, is, it often seems to be an, an older person, so a generational thing of, yeah. um, personally I have no particular interest in uh, worrying about the audience's safety, it's more dependent on how important what you are is saying, and whether or not you're informed about what you're saying. So, uh, like a good example of a comedian who could be contentious at times is like um, Frank Boyle, oh, who yeah. people like to paint as, he's a shock comic, he's not a shock comic. Everything he ever says has a deep underpinning to it. And what he's saying, he's usually making a joke about something important and then masking it through a piece of dark comedy. And so I think, yeah, we, we, we need to acknowledge that whether jokes are entertainment or, or um, exploration, why can that not be entertainment, exploration or trauma and things like that, yes, there is always a risk someone in the audience might coincidentally have a... Um, you know, uh, be, be driven by that or, or have a, you know, a bad experience. If we are worried about that, we will never say anything important. And yet there's also the flip side of this. We need to be informed. The audience, the audience in the end, the audience needs to believe that we are aware of the consequences of what we're saying. That's what I mean by safety is that it comes, yeah, yeah. that you can explore any type of topic provided that as a performer or as a writer, you are doing so from a place of, um, if not, you know, high intelligence, you're doing it from a place of understanding and um, empathy and curiosity and with some with some art to it. I love Frankie Boyle. I love him to absolute pieces. He just happens to be socially brilliant and incredibly, like, leftist and, um, you know, 
to my mind, uh, to my way of thinking, correct thinking person. And he is also brilliant at ending sentences in surprising ways. Um, and if you see him out of context, then he might come across as being horrendous. But that's fine. No, but not yeah. everyone is for everyone. And also, if, you, if someone criticizes that, they see it out of context and say, well, that's terrible. It's like, well, you're then expressing criticism out of a place of ignorance. In the same way that if he said the joke out of a place of ignorance, then you might be, you might be down to criticism. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to cross to you there. I just think as long as you're taking responsibility for the work that you put out there, then you're doing what you need to do. Yeah, absolutely. And as somebody who, and my work has a lot of uh, traumatic, Topic, subject matter, uh, and a lot of um, you know mental health subject matter. You get a response from audiences, and sometimes as a performer, being that vulnerable about things or being that truthful about things can make you a little bit unsafe to attention from audience members who want to really dig into things. I get response from my show of people disclosing pretty heavy stuff to me. But it's never so far been in a way where myself and the other person haven't been totally safe. And I'm actually inviting people to feel comfortable to disclose those things to me because I'm disclosing to them and I'm promoting disclosure as a method of, of emotional health. To kind of take it back to Hannah Gatsby, she's being very vulnerable in identifying trauma that she's been through and also aspects of her lived experience um, outside of the trauma of another person's behaviour to her that are going to be incredibly resonant to audience members who have never heard anybody else say that in a comedy context. So, you know, nothing's off, off limits as far as jokes. It's something that's often said by people who just want to talk about things that they have no knowledge or real right to talk about, when actually what it could mean is we can explore some really interesting areas and still have a laugh and feel safe with each other. Fascinating, thank you. Um, well, I think it's time to pass it over to the audience. Um, if there's any questions. <laughs> um, a lot of discussions around authenticity uh, centered around the definition of authenticity that obliges uh, the kind of heaviness, uh, vulnerability, fragility around really emotionally fraught topics. Um, and I guess my question around that is twofold. Firstly, how do we, as performers, keep ourselves and our audiences safe with that fragility so that we're not exposing those nerves before we're ready to, and that our catharsis is not contingent on the audience doing the emotional heavy lifting and becoming our captive therapists for an hour. But also, how do we temper that fragility and vulnerability and all that heavy stuff with an experience of authentic joy um, and can we bring an authentic light version of ourselves through that same conduit? Um, yeah, uh, I'll respond to this because something that I have run before and am running quite soon is um, a workshop about creative self-care and autobiographical writing. You can really only keep yourself in a light and sort of joyous space when you are talking about heavy or traumatic um, topics if you put the effort in to kind of to scaffold yourself and so often artists are running on empty 
um, and running on no money or they are working um, in another industry in order to support themselves in the arts that we often aren't given the time and the space to kind of be able to construct that emotional scaffolding. From my experience, you can bring lightness to dark places in, in uh, the topics that you explore by getting to a point of being very comfortable talking about those things without them really traumatizing you or without them bumming you out. If you approach traumatic or dark topics with the intention that you're not going to bum anyone out, you can achieve that. Yeah. Can we then, but also can we be authentic without necessarily addressing dark topics at all? Oh, is, there, yeah, is, there, is there an authentic self that's just an authentic, happy self, even if you have that grief or tragedy or trauma locked away yeah. and aren't necessarily ready to put that into your work yeah. um, because you're still processing it? Oh, yeah, can well, you be authentic in other ways? Oh, totally you can. I guess, I mean, so much of my authenticity in uh, autobiographical performance has been about real bummer topics, right? But yeah, I think authentic authenticity, what you were saying about like really having all this to do with like dark and deep and traumatic and like who is the who is the inner worm and how do we let them out? It's so not essential to authentic performance. And authentic joy is one of the more contagious things in our environments, right? Like happiness and um, excitement and celebration are things that we want to come together uh, to experience. It just always, to me, seems like a little bit of pathos and a little bit of sadness just lifts those good and joyous feelings a little bit higher. I feel like we have to become really attuned to noticing in our own selves when we are feeling joy, when there is that uncomfort, maybe around a conversation you need to have with someone like, oh, there's some uncomfort coming up. Like, what is that? Is there something behind in me that I'm pushing back on? And then that's an opportunity to investigate those feelings within yourself. And then once you have those conversations with yourself, and then once you become more comfortable noticing your authentic feelings, you can become an expert on them and and then I think authentically share them with an audience. Your question was very long and I still see I'm still deconstructing it. I think when you talk about safe, I think the thing with stand-up comedy is that I think we kind of um, touch on it, is that idea like I don't know if stand-up comedy comedy audiences necessarily need to feel obliged to feel safe. I think there needs to be an element of risk in some respect. I'm not talking about stuff that's kind of vulgar, but I don't want an audience to necessarily feel hugely... Yeah, I mean, the difference between you're pushing their boundaries or challenging their thinking and you're asking them to be your therapist and to help you process things that you haven't put in the work to process yourself. Mm. So that's when I would feel unsafe, and that's, that's what Jane was touching on before, um, that like you bring that work to the stage because you feel like exposing those raw nerves is going to be high art because you're being vulnerable. Yeah. Um, but at, at the end of the day, you're really um, putting the audience in the unsafe position of having to deal with a 
emotions and feelings and situations that you haven't processed internally yourself or haven't done the emotional work of going to therapy or any of are, you, are you sort of thinking along, along the lines of an audience needs to feel prepared for what's coming up? I think look, more that you as a performer need to feel prepared to, like if you've made a decision to talk about grief on stage, mm. um, but you're still processing that grief at a level that beyond what you're ready to bring to the stage. Right. Like, that's, I think, where it crosses over into the audience and becoming unsafe. Catharsis needs to be like a, a tool that we have as comedians, writers, improvisers. We need to know how to uh, engineer catharsis. And laughter is a, is a form of catharsis, right? And so if you are letting people's bodies respond to the, the contradictions and the juxtapositions within the material, then I think you're doing what you're doing in a, in a uh, safe way. I know I keep coming back to the, to the word safe. I don't mean safety in terms of, like, in, you know, padding everywhere. It's not like a, a, a rubber foam pit at the... At the children's gymnasium. It's actually just knowing as a performer that you're not going to endanger anyone. I think I can speak uh, from a conversation I had with Neil Thornton on this, and I asked him, is it less or more authentic to rehearse this joke a hundred times? Mm. And his response was, as long as the emotion is still real to you. So, for example, if we take in like, like rage comments or like angry comments, up on stage and like Bill Burr get up, gets up and is furious about something. You don't want to see an angry comic get up and like flip out and has this like unprocessed anger. And mm. it feels like, are you okay? Like mm. this doesn't feel like you've thought about it. This doesn't seem considered. This just feels like it's it's un, it's unfiltered. But when someone gets up on stage, whether it might be uh, centered around grief or it might be centered around rage or whatever kind of emotion, as long as the performer is confident within that emotion, I think that's the safety that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the difference between enabling the audience to empathise with you and making the audience feel concerned for you in the moment of performance, concerned that you are experiencing something on stage in front of them that you as a performer were not prepared for. Because And, and that happens in improv sometimes as well. We talk about audience feeling unsafe in those moments when they, when they feel like the performer is unsafe. When we put people on stage before we're perhaps ready to do an improv show um, and the audience, instead of being able to have a, a good time by exploring the scene with the performers, end up feeling concerned for the performance that they shouldn't in fact be there or they shouldn't be talking about that situation or they are actually this performance instead of being cathartic and healthy and a process that they're going through to help them process those emotions or those experiences has become something that's triggering for them as a performer and it's really making the wounds wider and worse. Yeah, that's, it's reminding me this kind of this construction that's sort of being um, talked about is reminding me of a show that was quite popular a few years ago, but it certainly hasn't been performed in New Zealand for a few years, I think, called White Rabbit, Red Rabbit. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And the the construct of that is that a performer gets given the script as they go on stage and 
they then tell the story and it is an incredibly traumatic tragic story and audiences and actors are really encouraged not to learn anything about it they haven't seen it before don't research it don't find anything about it and it kind of traps people into coming to see it because it's often does as a fundraiser right it is one of the most traumatic shows I've ever seen and I saw it being performed here by a friend of mine and I was so frustrated that entire performance because I just wanted him to be able to put the script down and go I'm not fucking doing this this is horrible this is hurting my feelings like the performers are not being cared for even by directors producers theaters who have chosen to put this on and have read that script they're then stunt casting they're trying to find people who are willing to do this one night performance people who will like bring in an audience of their friends and they're not actually necessarily thinking about the safety of that performer so if you're doing that with with improv if you're like putting somebody who's really green but enthusiastic mm. into a space where insecurity and apprehension is just going to creep over them you're potentially really putting them off i mean i left stand-up comedy because a wellington stand-up comedian uh said that i don't like swear right i just did before can i say word should i just say say word there's always post, you, you, right? can, you can say that i'll just say it yeah. all right uh, um, uh, a man that i was on the same bill as said that if i was funnier than him he'd kick me in the cunt so I was like, well, I guess I'm not doing stand-up anymore. This was in about 2013. It's probably a really, really different environment now in Wellington. But I was like, I'm out, I'm out. This is horrific. There's no way I'm going to be spoken to that way. And if that's the attitude that a man who is not as funny as me feels entitled to have towards me, well, you can have it. I've got better things to do. Uh, can I actually ask you a slightly different tack uh, yeah. to bring to sort of talk to minimising? Oh, good, oh, good, man. <laughs> it's just something I was thinking of. I was trying to find the right place to say it. And uh, no, I, I've often struggled with this uh, a little bit of a, a binary. It's much more complicated than this one. I wasn't talking about it wasn't briefly. Of sort of method versus system. And I find it often reflects a lot of these problems, as of course, you know, sounds like the end realism and, and invents what would become the method, but then he sort of added an extra bit on, and there's quite a departure between sort of America and then sort of British school, or the European school, of method turned out to be really, really useful in finding that, that firecracker moment where the person is discovering at the same time, and it's we seek an improv, but it's also, you know, the biggest danger is that someone discovers something in the moment, or the audience seeks to discover in the moment, and it's ah. Uh, that uncontrolled is the wrong thing to do. And of course in film, incredibly useful because you want to capture that moment on film and then the audience sees it in safety of being divided from it by the screen. Um, but then system is kind of an evolution of that again for the stage of you should be able to have those discoveries and traumas and explorations uh, that have baggage attached in your training, in your, in your you know, your training and your inspiration and your uh, uh, backstage sort of time, and then find a way to curate that mm. onto the stage. So, for instance, when we were talking about Hannah Gatsby, is that struck me as not someone walking up on stage and going, aha, and here's some trauma, watch me experience it again, or watch me discover it now. It was, no, no, 
I've already gone through this, processed it, I've packaged it, curated it. Do you understand what I'm saying as well? Do you have a connection with this? Because we're living in an age where that's becoming more and more common. I find that totally outside of the art form, I'll say to other people, I get the feeling that everyone is incredibly anxious about most things in their life, and we for some reason don't say to each other, I'm feeling incredibly anxious right now. Absolutely. That's why I talk about, that's what I mean when I talk about radical honesty, is actually mm-hmm. saying, this is how I feel. Having that, that disarming thing of moving beyond pleasantries into mm-hmm. reality actually has the capacity to, to bring people closer and to bring out the authentic in people's everyday lives, I suppose. Yeah, and, and the sort of method system of that, mm-hmm. even in real life, is that I guess the method of Russia, which is not so that method is wrong, it's just boring. Uh, in real life, it might be uh, just suddenly exploding with anxiety and expecting the other person to deal with it, mm. with your mm. sudden uh, inference of feelings onto them. Whereas system is when, I guess, you've taken the time to process your feelings and now you're delivering them a, uh, an offer, even a real-life offer. Mm. Yeah, we're actually all anxious, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. And, and they can then accept that and express that. You know? And everything is relational, whether mm. it's the stand-up comedian or solo performer and the audience, that relationship, or if it's a relationship between uh, two improv partners or relationships between a group of people who are improvising, relationships between actors on on a stage, everything is about, I'm offering this towards you, how are you going to respond to it? What are you going to give back to me? And how can I actually change my offer so that it's more acceptable to you and it works better with where you are at now? So in a relationship, a relationship, a friendship or a love relationship or a family relationship gets into conflict. When you do explode and the other person is just there receiving the explosion. But if you say, I'm feeling anxious, do you feel that you can cope with me right now the other person saying of course i love you i'm happy to cope with you right now but where it's you know if you go i'm anxious i'm anxious you have to cope with me there's there's you know that's not a relationship that it's on on equal footing well uh we're uh just want to check uh if there's any other questions from the audience yes sure um along that same line of thought talked a lot about the influence of personal authenticity on the performance. Just wondering if you have any experience with performativity impacting the self, impacting your day-to-day, and how that affects you? I was actually going to touch on that um, when we were all talking about our, like, what we discovered. Um, that when I first started doing improv, I, I was, like, 14 and I felt like a really weird kid. Like I felt like totally kind of ostracized and like I didn't have a place. Like and I just I just had all this playful energy. And like I, I remember one time like it was art class and I just crawled through someone's legs and said Milwaukee. <laughs> like I just like I had this this creativity and like this desire to connect but I didn't I didn't know how to do it and then when I started getting into improv and learning that I could you know channel this um, creativity in performance or in games or in scenes that actually started to affect how I 
um, connected with people like anywhere. And all of a sudden, I, I started to build this um, more compatible persona for myself <laughs> that channeled my you know, weirdness in a way that was palatable, but also in a way that I, I liked as well because I was like, oh, I'm not just the, the weird kid, like, I can make people laugh. And then just continuing improv, the more I would notice and discover through scenes, the more that, that would kind of affect how I could, you know, play with people in everyday life. It's like an outlet, it's like, like, for me, yeah, like, performing is my way of getting out of my system. And before I did stand-up, I just found myself wanting to be funny in social situations. Might not have always been welcome. And then stand up with my way of going, oh, I'll unload everything I have to you guys. And then in my normal life, I just relax. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, before we wrap it up, I'm just going to go down the panel and uh, we're just going to do uh, is anything that you want to promote, uh, whether it's your social media or any upcoming shows that you have. And then finally, just uh, one piece of uh, advice. Uh, in relation to authenticity that you would give to someone who is uh, starting out in performance? I have uh, two things to promote coming up. My solo show, Change Your Own Life, is on for one night only in the Dome at Bats on October the 24th. Tickets are on sale now. There's only 67 tickets, so if you want to see it, you have to book right now. Um, and also I'm directing uh, this queer Christmas ballet, The Slutcracker, which opens in the Dome on November the 24th and runs until um, December the 12th. Um, so please come and see those. Um, uh, don't follow me on social media. Follow at Tahi Festival instead. Um, and one piece of advice that I would give someone starting out, it would actually be to, um, it would be to start journaling. Honestly, the more somebody can do something like morning pages where you write three pages or just even writing one page uh, straight out of your head first thing in the morning, the more you can release yourself from the brain clog, the, the more you are open to, um, to opportunities in the world because you're not so weighed down by, um, by your brain clog. I've got a couple of shows coming up on MC. Just Google Bones and Comedy, <laughs> you'll find, you know, I don't have a big fan base, I'm sure it'll, you know, it's all good. Um, in terms of advice, with stand-up and authenticity and truth, I don't know, don't agonise over it. Don't. They talk a lot about in stand-up about, you know, finding your voice, and I think it just it takes time. And I don't think you need to worry too much about your, you know, there's a lot more to worry about than, Just keep doing yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but tomorrow night, <laughs> um, I am a doubleheader in Hall Monitors, um, an improv show that kind of delves into the uncomfort of detention and connecting with people. And there's more shows happening. If you see Hall Monitors, I'm going to look out for Liz Butler. Um, I guess really far in advance, I'm doing a, an adaptation of the yellow wallpaper, um, which is going to be a kind of um, devised uh, dance, improv performance um, that 
we'll be doing we'll be doing that in this coming year. So look out for that. Yeah. Oh, and advice. I got I got to say some advice. Um, feel that feeling of joy in your body. Just that like warm feeling of joy, and just let yourself sit with that. Doom and Bloom is always doing something. We're sort of the hidden show because we only perform sort of once a month. Uh, headed away somewhere or other. Advice-wise, I would say we live in an age of the easiest access to any amount of information you can ever want. Read and watch everything you can get because there's never enough. You can never bring too much ammunition to the creative gunfight. <laughs> yes, that is all good advice. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, that was very insightful, and uh, I've got a lot to think about. So. Um, uh, thank you, Chris VT. Thank you, Liz Butler. Thank you. thank you, Brendan West. And thank you, Eugene Sargent. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you, team. And <laughs> thank you. Uh, that has been the New Zealand Improv Festival Conference Series. Thank you. This episode was produced and edited by me, Aaron Douglas, and made possible thanks to the New Zealand Improv Trust, Creative New Zealand, and Victoria University's internship program. The New Zealand Improv Festival Close to Home ran 3rd to the 10th of October 2020 at BATS Theatre. Learn more about it at improvfest.nz or find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.